Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. Uh, and today, although while normally we read books and talk about them over multiple episodes, we are doing a, one of our author interview se- series, our digital book club or quarantine book club, whatever uh, will have you. Um, today, we have author Sumeya Dawood uh, on to talk about her new novel, The Court of Lions, the second in the Mirage uh, sequence or series. Um, so yeah, Sumeya, do you want to talk a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, my name is Sumeya. Um, I am the author of Mirage and Court of Lions, the Mirage duology. Um, and it tells the story of Amani, who is a girl who lives on a very poor moon in a galaxy far, far away. Um, and about 20 years before the start of the story, um, the moon and the planet that the moon orbits um, were invaded, invaded and then conquered by an imperial force called the Vath. And so she's lived under occupation her entire life. Um, and on the night of her coming of age ceremony, um, the Kesba that they're in is stormed and she's kidnapped to the Imperial Palace on the main planet because it turns out she looks exactly like the Imperial princess who is half uh, indigenous like she is and half Imperial. Um, and so she's been drafted to become the body double because uh, the princess Maram is so hated by the locals um, and is constantly being sort of targeted for assassination and and the like. And she gets drawn into all of these sort of court politics and rebel politics and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a very fun book so far. I've, I've been reading the, uh, the first in the series. Um, I guess you did say it. So it is a duology that it is just the two of them in the series that you're writing. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And, um, is there anything else you want to say about yourself? Is this, uh, have you published other books or other things people should know you for? Um, so Mirage is actually my debut. Um, so the two that are out are the two that are out. Um, I have a short story called A Hagiography of Starlight that uh, is featured in um, the all-black feminist anthology, um, First a Phoenix Must Burn. Um, and I've got a Twitter and an Instagram, but that's basically all the publishing credits to my name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. Well, I like that. Um Cool. So the way, you know, usually, like I said, we'll, we'll do the save the readings for the end as opposed to starting off with one. But um, I'll try to ask kind of more general questions and maybe get it more into specific questions. So people who mm-hmm. are, you know, whatever about spoilers can like decide at the point they want to that they want to like pick up the books and read. But, um, you know, in particular, like I really so I really have been enjoying this book. Um, I find it really um I don't know. It's like, it's a mix of a lot of different genres in a way. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to start talking about that. Right. Like I actually got it and I thought it was going to be like straight up like historical fantasy. And instead it's actually Mm -hmm. kind of more of a space opera thing going on. And uh, in addition, there are elements of this like court intrigue elements of like romance. Um, There's sort of a lot of different pieces. And I wondered, you know, how, how, if at all you thought about genre while writing it. Oh, I thought so much about genre. Um, so I, I, I was recently, until I graduated, I was a PhD student um, of English literature. And so mm. genre is kind of my thing. Um, well, sort of, in like a kind of, in a really roundabout way. Um, but one of the things is that I grew up watching Star Wars. So my dad was um, old enough when the Star Wars movies came out that he saw them in theaters. Mm-hmm. And then he traumatized my sisters and I by forcing us <laughs> to watch the VHSs when we were kids. And so I used to have like constant nightmares of Jabba the Hutt eating me, yep. um, which was really fun. Yep. I got to tell you. And then the prequel trilogy happened. 
which I know is like sort of university or was until the sequel trilogy happened, sort of universally <laughs> reviled. Um, but I really loved them because they're so, they're so beautifully shot. They're like terribly overwritten. Um, and there's a lot of like plot holes and the third one is really terrible, but the costuming is amazing and the cinematography is amazing. And there are so many like really cool set pieces. Um, and my belief is that once you approach the prequel trilogy as a YA space opera, like a young adult space opera, it right. makes way more sense. Yes. Um, because Anakin is really just like a tortured young adult hero. He's like 18 by the end of the series or 20 something. Mm. Um, and so, so I grew up watching those and to me, they're like a perfect example of like what I actually think I write, which is space fantasy. Yes. So all of the trapping sort of of sci-fi with like the technology and stuff. And you're thinking about a futuristic world, which is really just like a mechanism by which you can think about like huge failing bureaucracies that are like so big that they can no longer actually function um with with fantasy set pieces which is really just an opportunity for me to like talk about history and the way that history impacts us um and those two things have always felt like really deeply enmeshed and and things that would like naturally go together but they're but they're not often the focus of science fiction like science fiction I mean rightly so often focuses on technology and I'm more interested in like what happened socially and like how do we begin to think about history when um we've been around for so long that we've accrued so much mm. of it right because human history is fairly short Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about it in relation to the rest of the world. Um, and as I say that, I'm like beginning to understand how I became a Victorianist because that's a very Victorian <laughs> way of thinking about history. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, so I, I was, I was really thoughtful and I was really deliberate. Um, I get a lot of readers who don't understand why it's set in space at all. Um, oh. and part of that is like I'm a sci-fi lover and I love Star Wars but part of it also is that it's like a really important thought experiment like who makes it to the future right right, right. um and what does that future future look like and and how do like if we allow this thought experiment to unfold like what do alternate futures look like in space right what does resistance mm-hmm. look like in the future in space what is et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. um and I'm a person who's driven to write like character relationships um, which really like when you're writing character relationships in a royal setting in space, that just becomes like court intrigue, right? And I feel like oftentimes readers hear court intrigue and they think the tutors because that's what they grew up on. <laughs> um, but court intrigue is really just like relationships and conflict all of the time with higher stakes because you all have like land power um, right. or like political, you have political heft. And so like the decisions that you make are no longer just personal. They have like the effect people's lives um and so all of those things really I was like really deliberate and really careful about how I drew those things together um and I do think that like people generally enjoy a genre mishmash like Star Wars is still going in fact I think my critique of the new Star Wars uh, uh, sequel trilogy is that like it did not lean at the genre mishmash enough like there was not a beautiful dress anywhere you're right <laughs> there were no that's a i had never considered that but that is 100 percent correct there were no beautiful you dresses. know everyone is dressed in like space dungarees or whatever and they're just like <laughs> there's not a beautiful there like leia is in is in like one beautiful dress in one shot at the end of the force awakens uh-huh and then palpatine is in like a luxurious red velvet robe that you can barely see mm-hmm. because the fake sith planet is so dark <laughs> Sorry, I have a lot of <laughs> I have a lot of critiques, and and John Viega's interview just came out today, so I'm I know. Like raring. Oh, we could. I mean, like, if you want to make this a podcast about Star Wars, we can do that. <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> Actually, on on that piece a little bit, you know, one one thing I immediately thought about when reading this book is it it in some ways feels like a um, 
you know, and I, and, and you, you brought up Star Wars. That's why I want to bring it up is the, um, you know, that, that moment in, I guess it is the first one, isn't it? Where, um, you know, Kira Knightley is like a stand in for Natalie Portland, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and that body double thing and the kind of, you know, surprise that happens when you think that Padme has died. And in reality, oh, no, it's this other person who doesn't matter as much. And like the kind like I that always sat a little bit like uncomfortably with me. And in some ways, this feels like a book of like, well, what if we took that that just that one idea really seriously? You know, right. who is Kira yeah. Knightley playing? Like, who is this person? And um, I really like that. I, it was that at all any of your intention? Um, yeah, I I mean, like I said, I was a huge fan, and I wasn't directly inspired by this. I actually I was talking to um my former editor, she's no longer in publishing. She works on like finance or something now. Um, but when she, we sort of came up with the idea together and she had read this article about Saddam Hussein's body double. Um, mm-hmm. And like, and it was a, I think it was an article in the New York times that really talked about like uh, the traumatic experience that he, exp- that he went through to like, because he, he also like, they like plastic surgery him so that he looked exactly like Saddam. Right. Um, um, and then also, like, my understanding was that he was, like, generally a good person. And then he, like, got pulled into all of these, like, awful things because Saddam was, like, insane. Um, and, like, his, I think his family was also held hostage so that he would um, cooperate and all of right. this other stuff. And now he's, like, stuck looking like Saddam for the rest of his life, um, even though the Hussein regime fell. Um and so we talked, we talked a lot about that and we talked a lot more about like the trauma of being forced to be a body double for someone who is so terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and Madam ended up being more complex than Saddam because usually, you know, the generally truly evil people are not that complex. They're like caricatures of themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and the woman that Emani has to be a double, body double for ended up being more complicated, but that was really our starting, our launching off point. Um, and then, and really the, the like Star Wars handmade and stuff, like I've always found it interesting. And there's also a segment of fandom that's always found it interesting. And it's really just like the, it's like an all women's space. And so you have all of these women that look really similar to you that are all willing to die for you. Like they mm-hmm. enter the service understanding, um, that like, sorry, I read, I also read like all of the Star Wars novelizations. <laughs> <laughs> so like these women entered, like they're trained up, they're specifically selected because they look like her, but they also volunteer. And so they're all like deeply loyal to Amidala. Um, mm-hmm. And they all take on the job, like understanding that like you are the shield and you have to be ready to die at any moment for her. Um, mm-hmm. And and so I've, I've always found that deeply fascinating. And, and I've all, and I like all of the things that I write, um, are always like really women focused. And so I was really interested in like a space in which the shield is not the sort of traditional masculinity, right? Like you always have like the male bodyguard who's really silent and right. is always telling you what to do in order to be safe. And instead you have like women constructing and building um, a kind of shield and a safety net. Um, that's both about like the personal, but also very much about the political because you need because you, you have bodyguards and body doubles because the state lives in this one person. And if they die, it creates all of this instability. Um, and so I was interested in like sort of interrogating that through this, the, this relationship between these two women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So I want to get back to that, but I also, you know, you mentioned something about, uh, Saddam Hussein and just like, you know, it, it brought to mind, like when I was first reading, especially the early parts of this book, I couldn't help 
but think of the Iraq war, right? Like, and this yeah. sort of like this invasion, this happens, this imperial occupation. Um, also some of the details, like these droids coming in mm-hmm. and this sort of like, uh, you know, I just like immediately thought of drone warfare um, as, yeah. you know, the last, like, you know, several presidents have been doing uh, in the Middle right, East. Yeah. And, and like, you know, I, I wondered, like, was that one of the things you were specifically drawing on for this from this occupation? Because it was very, like, you know, visceral to me. Like, the first couple of chapters are, you know, it starts so beautifully and then gets so horrific so quickly uh, in this way that's very, like, indicative of, I think, real war uh, areas yeah. as, as much as I understand. And so, like, I, I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that stuff. There's a couple of questions in there. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fine. Um, so, so my mother is actually Moroccan, so I'm half Moroccan and she grew up in Morocco, um, during the years of lead, which is like the sixties and the seventies. Um, mm-hmm. so I don't know how much you know about like French colonial history in North Africa. Um, but like in the, in the mid fifties, they like gave Morocco sovereignty. And so like part of the nation making apparatus was that, um, Morocco needed like a public facing unified identity. And so like, this is true of North Africa and also a lot of places in the Middle East and South Asia. I mean, like generally Mm -hmm. the world over, but like North Africa in particular has like a huge amount of indigenous ethnic groups called collectively, they're called the Amazigh, right? And so they all have different languages and they have different um, customs. And Morocco decided that, like, cause, because they're a majority Muslim country and they had been a majority Muslim zone for, like, several centuries since the Arab conquest, that um, the best unified outward-facing identity was to be Arab, right? So most people mm-hmm. around the world don't actually know that North Africa has an indigenous population. They think everyone is Arab. Um, and so part of that was Morocco, the Moroccan government cracked down on indigenous expression, like violently mm. during the years of lead, um, under Hussein Athani, I think. Um, and so that meant like artistic suppression. You were arrested if you spoke out against the government. Um, the official languages were French and Arabic so that like you were not allowed to teach indigenous languages, Um, And there was no signage in indigenous languages. So if you go, if you went to Morocco like 20 years ago, all of the signage was in French and Arabic. And -hmm. now there's, there's signage in, um, I think is is what it's called. Um, All over, but that didn't used to be the case. And they weren't allowed to have like television channels, right. um, In their languages. And until really recently, um, if you didn't have an Arabic name, you didn't get a birth certificate. So you weren't allowed to have like an indigenous name. Wow. Wow. Um, or you were, or you can be a citizen. Um, so I did. So I asked my mom a lot about this because my mother is uh, Shluhi and Sahrawi, which are two of the indigenous groups in Morocco. Her father is Sahrawi and her mother is Shluhi. And so I asked her about her experience because uh, Shluhis also speak an indigenous language to Shluhit, which she knows how to speak, but she was not. She's she's not allowed to speak it in school in the classroom, and you were beaten if you did. And so I did a lot of, I asked my mom a lot about like her experience with that. And then also did a lot of research because there were a lot of dissident magazines um, that are like being brought out of the archives and translated. Um, So I did a lot of reading of that. And I did a lot of reading of like dissident poets. Um, And so I was drawing really explicitly on like a French colonial and post-colonial model of like what fascism looks like and what a surveillance state looks like um and i read a lot of like first and second hand accounts of like men and women who were arrested and thrown in jail or thrown in black site prisons because uh for championing um indigenous expression and that sort of thing um and so all of that like really informed how i wrote about colonialism and empire in 
mirage um and the, the like i think it's interesting that you said that like you were reminded a lot of the of the iraq war because i think like imperialism always looks the same no matter where you are like the tactics are really the same because they're really the tactics the tactics used are really effective um and so like uh amani's fear of being uh surveyed surveilled by like the drones all of the time and amani's and husnain's fear of like if they're caught with this like indigenous poetry they'll be arrested because like there are there it's like it's not a law but it's like heavily implied if you're in possession of like indigenous artistic material that you'll be arrested and thrown in jail um like all of these things are really effective ways in which um empires wrest control from indigenous populations right right um like even in Morocco now, there are still people because French is still the language of business, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so there are all, there are Moroccans who like have only lived in Morocco their entire lives, and they only speak French. Like they don't speak Arabic, they don't speak an indigenous language, um, and like the literacy rate and the college retention rate in Morocco is really low because. Um, you have to speak French. A lot of the schools are taught in French and the university, all of their textbooks come from France. All of the textbooks are in French. So if you don't Mm. speak French, then you can't actually graduate college with a university degree. And so the literacy and the graduation rate is super low because most people don't. A lot of people don't speak French um, and you need money to know how to speak French. Um, Right. It's still this carryover from it being like the ruling language, but it's still the elite language in that way. Yeah. And so, and, and so, and, and so continuing to be, you know, like, uh, then like French colonialism is ostensibly gone, but it still continues to disenfranchise a country that mm-hmm. has ostensibly been liberated for since the sixties, mm-hmm. you know, since the fifties. Um, and so I thought a lot about these legacies and like what it would, what it would feel like to like be growing up under them, you know, um, and I'm a person of color and I live in the United States. So I think, so I thought a lot about also like the weird, gap that happens when your parents have immigrated to another country and so and then that way you're sort of disinherited from your own cultural legacy a second time mm-hmm. um and that sort of thing and so all of that informs the shape that the book took and the narratives that are in the book so it's really rooted um in thinking about uh personal identity and how and how identity relates to language and how language and culture can be sort of a bridge building exercise within the community Right. Like I have a lot of friends. I speak like, okay, Darija, which is like the Arabic dialect spoken in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And I trained in classical Arabic for a long time. Um, but I have a lot of friends who don't speak a lick of their parents' language because they, because their parents were afraid that like, if there was even a hint of an accent or like the school board found out that they spoke a second language, they'd be put in ESL. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So all of, all of those things um, inform Amani's arc and Maram's arc to a, to an extent in the first and in the second book. Okay. Interesting. No, that's really, I, you know, I, I knew very little of that history and that's a really fascinating like perspective on it as well as I immediately see the parallels, uh, in the book and, and why you're bringing this out. It's really fascinating. Did you, did you also draw on like, you know, like, like it's interesting to draw on such a recent history yeah. For all of this, uh, like, like what other like historical bits did you draw on? Cause this is like so rich and it's also this history that like, you know, I feel like most Americans probably don't know a whole lot about. Right. Yeah. 
Um, I actually, in terms of like the literature, I drew a lot on uh, like the medieval Islamic golden age. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot, so all of the poetry, I get like people on Twitter who are like, haha, did you write the like really saucy poetry? And I'm like, no, (laughs) 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 no, I did not. Um, So at the time that I was writing Mirage, I was also reading up, reading for my qualifying exams and my dissertation ended Mm. up focusing on like translation theory. And the way that I found myself there is that I started actually reading about like, um, medieval Arabic texts and like literary traditions and how like Arabist scholars think about translation because Arabic is a very hard language to translate because it like lives in the nuances Mm. um and so like you approach one word and you realize that it has six different meanings and all of those meanings depend on the context in which it was written um and it's placed in the sentence and all of this other stuff and so I was reading about and so I ended up I ended up just like collecting this these like anthologies of like medieval Arabic poetry and the thing that they don't tell you when you grow up in the United States and all of your history of the Middle East and North Africa is filtered through like a western imperial imperialist lens so there were hella uh, like female poets writing super saucy <laughs> poetry that was then performed in public oh, right interesting. to the people that the poetry was written about right so like the po the poem that's like come to me at night like she said that to him to his face in front of other people right <laughs> like that's the practice <laughs> wow and so it opened up I know I was I was like you know I wouldn't have the balls no I was just gonna it, say the same <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> saucier than I am for sure <laughs> yeah but it, but it really, it opened up this, like, um, this really cool space in thinking, um, like, the the way, like, I am, I'm already resistant to the way that, like, the West thinks about the Muslim woman and the Muslim woman yeah. in the historical archive. But, like, having these, like, you can have the poetry, but then having the historical context of the Mujadasats, which are, like, the cafes or salons in which the poetry was performed, um, and the sort of relational... Uh, interpersonal conflicts that arose out of the performances of this poetry like really opened up a feminist space to be thinking about like what actually like that to, to challenge both what I knew about Muslim women in the, in the archives and Arab women in the archive um, and then to sort of port that understanding into my book so I ended up doing not just reading of the poetry but reading of a of like the literary history of that poetry and thinking about like, what is the context of this poetry? How did it emerge? How, what, like, what was its social meaning? Because the interesting thing, the difference between a lot of the Muslim kingdoms or the Islamic kingdoms in North Africa and in the Middle East and European medieval kingdoms is that like, North Africa and the Middle East is a lot of desert. So there's not landed gentry. Like you don't have dukes who are dukes because they own like these huge tracts of lands, right? right so like right. class mobility is a lot uh, more fluid. I don't want to say it's easier because <laughs> I think that like, that's not true, but it, but it's very different. Right. So that like a lot of the like Arab or Muslim people that have lasted into memory and that like have Wikipedia pages, for, for example, are like the son of cobblers. Right. Mm-hmm. There are nobodies who were like in a salon and impressed a caliph or a magistrate or a wazir with their poetry. And that's how they were elevated. Right. And that's how they, they gained status. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a lot of like reading on the social history of like poetry and literature in the medieval Arabic scene. Um, and that informs a lot of like the history that Amani is thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, because I wanted to, I wanted the world and the history of the world to feel very distinct from like the traditional medieval European history and i also wanted it to feel richer than star wars because i feel like with star wars you get all of these beautiful costumes that i love obviously but they're entirely divorced from like any sort of cultural context right so that like i went to um the costume the traveling star wars costume exhibit in like 2000 and 
2016 or 2015. Um, and all of the little placards were like, this is based on dress from Mongolia. And I'm like, cool, there are no Mongolian people in Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is she in a Mongolian dress? Right. Um, you know, and so I, I wanted like the costuming and the poetry and the history to all be be working together to create um, like deep meaning. And so that I've, I've gotten a lot of like uh, Moroccans or North Africans specifically, and then Arabs more largely, uh, who have been like, I love this book because I can, I like recognize all of this stuff and I recognize the poetry. Like there's a poem at the end um, that Ameni recites at the end of the book. And like every single person who has any familiarity with like Arab poetry or like, um, like Arab singing legends recognized it because mm. it's like one of the most famous Arab poems in the world. Right. And like most American readers are like, I don't know what that is. And then I get like, I get like Arabic speaking fans who are like, oh my God, I love the song. I heard the Faroos version when I was a kid, you know? Right. Um, well, I love that you're sneaking so, that in for uh, like folks like me who don't know anything about it to, you know, like yeah. get this, I won't call it an education because I don't think I'm particularly like learning, but I am getting this like, you know, <laughs> sense of awareness that this exists. Yeah. And I, and I tried to make it so that like, you don't lose like the book doesn't feel less complete if you don't get it but no. you get an extra you get an extra layer if you do know these things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah one thing that struck me about the book like with all of this and kind of hearing you talk about it now is there's you know there's this phenomenon that i think uh, especially like western science fiction writers who choose like another like you know culture to write from the perspective of for their far future worlds and it's like it can become a little bit you know it's like oh well there's this other culture and like it's weird so it will feel alien to you and that's right like not what this book feels at all it's rather it's like oh here's this like beautiful like kind of like well-developed culture that doesn't feel alien so much as it feels like you know different and meaningful Mm -hmm. and like like deep and rich and full of history um and i and i really like and hearing you talk about it it becomes immediately clear like why it feels that way Um, (laughs) because it's like both very meaningful to you and also it is like a very real culture that is like deep and full of history yeah great so i um I guess I kind of wanted to talk like about the characters a little bit. I guess we you know, can't go too in depth, but like, you know, I, I'm curious, like, you know, the, the characters all are like not who they seem on the surface, especially those mm-hmm. at court. Right. And like, obviously some of that is just like, that is courtly politics. Right. Um, but also like, I, I'm, I'm surprised by how much I, Okay, so I think this is the question or the the kind of statement question thing. Um, you know, there, there's this point where uh, Ar- Armani is that how you pronounce her name? Ameni. Yeah. A- Ameni. Okay. Um, when she is like, you know, like coming into more of herself or more into her role as the body double and like, you know, the first time she actually gets to be the body double, she begins to really like see things from the other woman's perspective and almost like enjoy the position that she's in right mm-hmm. and like i i think it uh, you called it complicated early and it does kind of cast this complicated light of like you know even within these like courtly politics like there are people who like are you know more or less like in power or more or less privileged and just like having a certain title doesn't actually grant you what you might think it might and then also you have folks like um uh, the, 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 her fiance who is, you know, like comes from this like background that he actually knows less about 
than this, mm-hmm. like, you know, village woman does because, like, the upper classes have had to really have it beat it out of them. Whereas, like, the lower classes, like, you can't do that for everyone. You know, you do your best mm-hmm. in these kind of, like, large raids, like we see at the beginning of the book, and it's terrible. But also, like, people have their culture there, and you can't really get rid of it. And, um, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, the question is, like, like, I've really enjoyed, like, the way that you've drawn these characters. And I'm really curious, like, you know, what you think about in terms of writing you know, characters who are both relatable, but also like are doing really awful things and how you like juggle that kind of relatability versus still like having kind of a moral center that like these things are wrong and these things are right. So I think you're talking mostly about Marum because she's really the character yeah. that like does really terrible things. And she's, she's got such a stellar opening. That's so viscerally cruel. Mm. Um, um, and so for her, She's really like, um, I said, I was talking to my friend Sarah about this, um, and Marum works as a character because you understand the stakes for her. And the stakes for her are, she looks like Amani, mm-hmm. and she lives in a world where the thing that's prized above all else is racial purity. Right. And she's only the heir because of like a legal snag, right? <laughs> and she's keenly aware of the fact that like, if they could get rid of her, they would, right? But mm-hmm. her presence validates the occupation and makes it legal, right? So she understands that she's like the stopgap to a war crime, which right. is a, a truly awful thing to be living under. And I think that that's what makes her relatable to a lot of um, to a lot of readers, and what make, or at least what makes her compelling and mm-hmm. sympathetic, right? Because. Mm-hmm. Um, if your father was Mathis and and you knew that your dad killed his dad, you're going to be walking on eggshells like your entire life. You, <laughs> yeah. you understand like the blood tie is not is not sacrosanct for Mathis, right? He right. like he does not care. Um, so so in that sense, I think that's that's how she becomes so so relatable. But she's also a character who's like really rooted in defensiveness. And you start to see the character, the reader starts to see through Amani just like exactly how defensive she is and how brittle that defense is. And so she's like an intensely vulnerable person who like doesn't she's so she's so vulnerable and brittle that she like can't like you're afraid to tease her because you don't know how she's gonna react. Right. Right. Um, and you put that with a person, like you put that sort of a personality in power and then they do awful things to be, to defend themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really just thought about like, she's an insecure teenager. So she's like an insecure high schooler. We've all met those people. We've been those people. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just, you just want to sort of like hide behind your hair all of the time, but then you give her an immense amount of power and you like let her anger go unchecked and you have you get sort of like the worst personality right and amani is only and the reader and amani are only able to relate to her because then they get to glimpse these moments of like vulnerability without the hunting raptor on her shoulder right mm-hmm. um and so that's really like i really th- thought of her and i think readers also think of her as like this like just she's like a young teenager um who's just like deeply afraid right and she just needs someone to hold out a hand to her right because she's also been rejected by like both sides of her family and she doesn't have a mother and her father is you know off conquering other planets so she's she's so deeply alone she's got this really creepy stewardess sort of following her around right <laughs> who's, yep. who's procured a body double for her right um which like when you you know when you say it like that you're like that's in, that's so creepy this is the woman who <laughs> raised her she like procured yeah you know yeah um 
And then with, with Emani, it's, I think the thing that's really interesting to me as a writer who's sort of familiar with like the stuff that I've written that hasn't gotten published is that I do know that Emani is not the sort of character that I generally write. Maram mm. is sort of the character that I generally write. And she's the sort of personality that I generally gravitate towards. Um, and, um, but Emani is like so wholesome and she's so compassionate. Um, but I also think that like, she gets that compassion because she had like a generally stable childhood. Like she, she was never in any doubt that her parents or her siblings loved her. She never had to worry, like she had to worry about where food was going to come from, but she always knew that like her core family was stable and mm-hmm. that they loved her. And she had like a really strong sense of identity. And I think that really empowers her to be able to extend compassion to Marum, Right. And that's, and like many is kind of sort of the ideal version of like who we all want to be. Right. People who are kind enough to be able to see, um, someone's vulnerability and to sort of help them out of that. Right. Right. Um, but that only becomes possible because Amani and Marm share a culture, right. And Amani becomes a bridge through which Marm can sort of experience that culture. Right. And, and experience something that is, uh, that has been, that she's been told to revile her, her entire life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Very cool. Interesting. Well, so I don't want to take up a whole bunch of your time. So I'm going to ask kind of like one more question. Uh, we can do the reading and then uh, sort of or sign off at that point, if that works for you. Um, yeah. And I was, you know, I'm mostly kind of curious, like, you know, I've been I've been in a be like my partner through this, like we've both been doing these like author interviews. And one thing I've just been very curious is like, you know, especially this is your second book. You, you know, published your the first book uh, in the before times. And like now you're doing this, you know, 2020. And like you're sort of like what that experience has been like for you, like has the you know, like what have you enjoyed about being a published author just generally? And then also, you know, sort of like how how has the stuff been changing for you and how's it going for you? Um, the stuff that I've the thing that I've enjoyed the most, uh, especially with these books, is like uh how much Moroccan readers have responded to it. Mm. Because one of the things that I was really afraid of when I was writing them is that Moroccan readers would not respond to it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm keenly aware of the fact that like I'm Moroccan, but I'm in diaspora and that's a very different experience than being Moroccan in Morocco. Right. And growing yeah. up in Morocco, those are very different. And so I know that I have sort of like a different slant on the culture and I see the culture d- through a different lens simply by virtue of being like outside it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like talking to my mom about it is very interesting because she grew up in Morocco. And so a lot of the hangups that I have about like cultural appropriation, she like just doesn't care about <laughs> She like grew up in Morocco. She's like, Everybody has it. I'm like, everybody does not have it. <laughs> yep. In America, that's not true. Yep. <laughs> um, and so it's been it's been so great to like watch Moroccan readers, like, first of all, discover that there is, because I think I am the only published North African in the young adult space. Okay. Um, so yeah, which is like a really cool yeah. moniker to have. I should add that to my Twitter bio, the only <laughs> North African. <laughs> Um, and so it's been really cool to watch, uh, to watch other Moroccan readers and North African readers broadly be like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is like, I can see all of my culture in it. Um, but in terms of how it's changed, I don't know. I'm sort of a homebody anyway. Like really the biggest (laughs) change when the pandemic started is that I can't go to my coffee shop every day to work Mm -hmm. and I can't go into the, onto campus because I teach at the university. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but otherwise my life is like, I'll get up. My mom is always like, what did you do today? I'm like what I do every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> I went to the coffee shop to work. Um, yeah, pulled weird things out of my cat's mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
oh, you know, I'm usually not at home this much. And for the last six months, I've been at home all of the time. And now I'm really scared. Like whenever I have to go back to work, my poor cat's going to have Sumeya withdrawal, which is a really arrogant thing to say. But you know, like, no, it's a hundred. I worry about the same thing with mine. Absolutely. They're around us all the time now and they're so used to us and he's so affectionate, you know? Um, he like I like need to be in his line of sight most of the day for him to feel right. comfortable. Right. At least you take <laughs> a like, walk, and do? she's like, "Where are you going? You don't leave." I know. Oh my god, I sit on the porch sometimes just to like absorb sunlight, and my cat will like lift his head because I'll leave the like uh, the wood door open and just the porch screen, the screen mm-hmm. door. Uh, and he'll press his face against the glass of the screen door and just wail <laughs> the entire time that I'm on the porch. Like I cannot be out there for more than five minutes before he's just like, Mom! "Oh no, <laughs> yeah, the poor little monster." <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry to call your cat a monster. That's how I refer to mine. So that, but he really is right. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Well, yeah. Do you do you have a reading that you would want to do uh, from? Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and read the prologue of Mirage so that if you haven't read Mirage yet or like a page of the prologue so that it's not too long. um, So that if you haven't read it yet, you'll be you'll be intrigued. Perfect. Okay. He's the only one of his family without the dam. They say this makes him ideal. No traditional markings on his face to identify him should he die. No way to trace him back to his family. He is young, not yet 15, too young for the dance ceremony. There, This is what she says to him when, he, when she comes to choose him. That he is young and that he is skilled and that he is steady. This, she says, is all that matters. He does not feel young. He feels hungry. The sort of hungry that gnaws at him day and night until it is so much his companion he does not know how to live without it. He feels hard because he knows how to take a beating, how to fall just so when a guard hits him with a baton. He feels angry, so angry, the sort of anger that does not need fuel. He is invisible in a sea of invisible faces. The crowd is silent, but then the crowds at these events are always silent. They are sullen, too sullen. The nobles sit on velvet cushions behind gold rope, but those who stand, who look up at the podium waiting for her to appear, they are the poor, the hungry, the weak. They are here because they must be here. And I think that's where I'll stop. Excellent. Well, it's a very lovely book. It's a like I'm having a really fun time reading it. I expect to read the second as well. Um, oh yay! Yeah. No. And thank you so much for coming. Like this has been a wonderful experience, and I really enjoyed getting to like actually learn stuff about history that I don't know about at all. Which is oh like, yeah. My thank you so much things. for having me. I had such a lovely time. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> me too. Um, is so, uh, folks. I will like link to the books and everything, obviously, in the description. Uh, is there anything in particular you want to plug other than that? Like you know your web site or anything like that oh yeah so you can find me on twitter at sumeya daoud and uh my website sumeyabooks.com and you can find me on instagram at sumeya with three eyes and one y great and i will i will link to all of that in the show notes comments etc uh for folks great well again sumeya thank you so much this was like utterly a pleasure and i wish you all the best of luck with you know the (laughs) the quarantine book tours that you're doing from home yeah thank you so much for having me this was such a delight absolutely all right bye-bye